open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And Galatians chapter 1. We'll read Ephesians first. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 5. Excuse me, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. Galatians chapter 1. Again, Paul writing, Verse 11, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For ye have heard of my my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. May the Lord bless the reading of His Holy Word this evening. Paul was a man who was saved by the grace of God. That was the very notion that filled his heart and mind and soul. He preached it, he taught it, until the very moment that he left this life. And it is recorded for us all through the New Testament, both in his testimonies uh, in Philippians chapter 3, and in, his, uh, in Galatians here, especially with the emphasis on this, when it pleased God, not when it pleased me, Paul says, when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace. Paul knew and understood that all of his life was under the sovereign hand of God and everything about his life was part of God's sovereign purpose for him, including his salvation. There wasn't a parenthesis in his life called Paul's helping God to save him. That era was not there. God saved the Apostle Paul. In our last study, we considered some examples of God's saving grace, both in the Old and New Testaments. Our purpose was uh, simply to underscore the fact that salvation is of the Lord. And this is clearly displayed throughout the Bible. And this is especially seen in the conversion of Paul, which we looked at last week in a little bit of detail. Enlightened, regenerated, and personally taught by the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, as we just read here, he preached the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. Not only did he proclaim the grace of God, but the New Testament writings clearly give it form and structure. 
Grace is the very heart of Pauline theology. If we read the Acts of the Apostles and the Pauline Epistles carefully, we must observe this. As I said last week, the idea of God saving men by grace apart from works was the idea that Paul declared and defended against numerous enemies. Paul's writings bear this out. And it went from Paul and his writings and the other apostles uh, as the heritage of the early church. And tonight we want to look at the testimony of grace in the early church. Those of you perhaps that haven't been with us the last Wednesday or two, we've uh, begun studying the doctrine of grace. But we are beginning in what some people might think is actually a backwards way to do it. Some would say, well, go to the Scriptures, develop your doctrine, and then talk to us about history. But my purpose with beginning with history is simply to say that when we come to the doctrine, uh, we will recognize that this is not something new, but the very notion of God saving sinners is to be found throughout all of the Scripture, and it is to be found in history. So I, I want to uh, clear the doctrine of grace, so to speak, as uh, others have throughout the history of the church from the title of novelty or something new. <clears throat> now, the church in its infancy did not have a clearly developed understanding of what we might call biblical theology. They didn't have any... Uh, they couldn't go down to the local bookstore and get some scrolls of systematic theology. That, that wasn't there. Now, of course, uh, the Jews had many, many commentaries and uh, glosses and targums, teachings uh, regarding the Scriptures, and they did have systematic studies of doctrine. Uh, and there were uh, many who were familiar with those kinds of things, as Paul was himself. But <clears throat> the Pauline doctrine and... Uh, other that we see developed in the New Covenant Scriptures, was not a clearly systematically developed doctrine in the early church. But we do want to see that they did see and understand that God was sovereign. And God ruled over all things. Now, <clears throat> the study of the, of the issues and the history of those times will help us to see partly why this is. Now, I gave four reasons last week. I just want to review them quickly. Four reasons why there was not a, a uh, clearly developed theology of grace, though they knew that the gospel was the gospel of grace. First, it is crucial that we understand that corruptions in doctrine and practice invaded the early churches. All we need to do is read the New Testament carefully. Uh, read the epistle to the Galatians. <clears throat> read the uh, epistle to the Philippians to the Corinthians and others. Secondly, in the first four centuries, the Christian churches were embroiled in battles over the nature of God and of the person of Jesus Christ. Until these critical doctrines were hammered out, little progress could be made toward theological issues. So development of these doctrines, especially the relationship between God's will, excuse me, between God's grace and man's will, awaited later controversies. I think this is an excellent quote uh, from John Gill. I wanted to include this this evening. He very aptly put it this way. What need is there to search into their works, meaning the early church fathers, who before this heresy arose 
were under no necessity of troubling themselves to solve this difficult question, which without doubt they would have done had they been obligated to answer such things. Hence it is that what they thought of the grace of God they have briefly and transiently touched upon in some places of their writings, but dwelt on those things in which they disputed against other enemies of the church. In other words, my second point, the Christian churches were embroiled in other battles at that time, defending the person of Jesus Christ and uh, formulating uh, and understanding these issues of his uh, incarnation and the Trinity. Thirdly, during that time, some Christian writers tended to emphasize certain aspects of doctrine differently because they lacked a more fully developed understanding of these things. Some of the early fathers could be quoted by people on both sides of the argument. I spent the afternoon reading uh, in some of the early church fathers, and, and you could see they, they would say one thing and very inconsistently say the very opposite later on because they were not being pressed to be sharp about some of these things. They were being challenged in some areas and they were giving their time and their energies to developing and honing those doctrines. It's the same thing in every generation. <clears throat> Many Christians were very unclear and hazy, very foggy in their thinking about the issues of the Holy Spirit until uh, the Pentecostal movement arose. And then all of a sudden there was a great deal of discussion and people were going to their Bibles and, and looking up and reading and studying with great fervor these particular issues. And, and so it is uh, from age to age. Fourthly, many early Christian leaders had been influenced by pagan Greek thought of their day. And that is very clearly seen. Many of the early church fathers were men who had been involved in philosophy. And uh, there was no doubt some mixture in their thinking as they looked through what they had of the scriptures in their day. So these are just some of the ideas uh, that we need to consider as we wonder why there was no clear and distinct doctrine of the saving grace of God as we presently understand it today. Now, let's just look at some quotes from some of the early church fathers. Now, some of you will find this, I trust, very interesting and, and thought-provoking. Some of you may find it uh, kind of like Salmonex. All right, so I hope uh, with all of my heart you'll find some encouragement here. But the following statements uh, by these early Christian writers give us a very clear understanding of how they had fallen away from Paul's doctrine of man. If you will study the epistles and look at Paul's doctrine of man, you will find some of these perplexing quotes from the early church fathers who were supposedly reading the epistles. Justin Martyr, uh, his dates were about 110 to 165, says this, For if it be predestined that one man be good and another man evil then the first is not deserving of praise or the other to be blamed. Unless humans have the power of avoiding evil and choosing good by free choice, they are not accountable for their actions, whatever they may be. For neither would a man be worthy of reward or praise if he did not of himself choose the good, but was merely created for that end. 
Likewise, if a man were evil, he would not deserve punishment, since he was not evil of himself, being unable to do anything else than what he was made for. This was uh, the very argument of John Wesley. This was the very argument later uh, of Charles Finney. Names that I trust that you're familiar with. Another man by the name of Chrysostom. His dates were 350 to 407. He was a bishop of uh, Constantinople. He was known as Golden Mouth because he was such a great and eloquent, had a very unusual, eloquent uh, speaking style. He wrote this, Since God has placed good and evil in our power, He has granted free decision of choice and does not restrain the unwilling, but embraces the willing. Who does, who does God save? Those who happen to be willing. Brethren, this is what many continue to believe in our day. He also says, in order that not everything may depend on divine help, we must at the same time... Did you hear that? It's amazing. In order that everything may depend... Excuse me, that everything may depend on divine help, we must at the same time bring something ourselves. Not everything depends on divine help. In other words, you know, we need God to help us along, but we can get there. This is man's natural thinking. Let us bring what is ours. God will furnish the rest. Now, brethren, this was later very prominent theology in Roman Catholicism. We do our best, God will add to it. Clement of Alexandria, about 155 to 220, he was a heathen philosopher who became a Christian, and he said this, Neither praise nor condemnation, neither rewards nor punishments are right if the soul does not have the power of choice and avoidance, if evil is involuntary. Of course, uh, with all of these quotes, there's a little bit of truth and uh, some error, uh, which I trust we'll see later as we examine men's thoughts next to the Word of God. You have to show the unclear thought found in this very man, uh, he says this in another place, the one who just said this. He said, according to the fitness which everyone has, he, that is God, distributes his benefits both to the Greeks and to the barbarians and to them who are predestinated from among them and are in his own time called faithful and elect. the opposite of what he had enunciated earlier. Jeremiah 1, 5, and 7 says, Do not say, I am a child. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Now Clement says, regarding this passage, This prophecy intimates unto us that those who before the foundation of the world are known by God unto faith, that is, are appointed by Him to faith, are now babes because of the will of God lately fulfilled as we are newborn unto vocation and salvation. Now, brethren, that's a good understanding of the grace of God. He even corrects himself. Who are known by God unto faith, that is, appointed by Him to faith. 
But here's a man who, if you took him at one sentence, you could make an argument that he was, quote, Arminian. You look at the, another quote, you'd say, well, he was Calvinistic. Both of those are anachronistic terms. That's out of time. He was way before those terms ever came into use. And that is one of the problems. When we go back into the past and try to find movements, so to speak, and label men in their time with the ways we think now. We've got to be very careful with that. Now, let's hear just a few quotes on predestination, and then we'll press on. <clears throat> uh, there was a man named Clement of Rome, who was uh, earlier than Clement of Alexandria. <clears throat> he apparently was in the very first uh, century and uh, was called by Clement of Alexandria an apostle. Uh, Clement of Rome says this, when he, meaning God, when he wills and as he wills, he does all things. When he wills, as he wills, he does all things. And he said, none of those things which are decreed by him shall pass away. He not only frequently makes mentions of persons under the character of the elect of God, he called them that regularly in his writings, Speaking of the schism and sedition in the church at Corinth, he represents it as what was very unbecoming and should be far from the elect of God. Now again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to make these men quote Calvinists. I'm just saying they spoke of these things. Why? Because it's in the Scriptures. Now, we might not all agree on how this is defined, but they're talking this way because this is the way Paul talked. Because it's the way the New Testament writers wrote. And, as we saw last week, we see grace prominently set forth in the Old Testament. Clement goes on to say this, having cited Psalm 18.26, he says, Let us therefore... Therefore, join ourselves to the innocent and righteous, for they are the elect of God. And in another place, enlarging in commendation of grace of love, he says, Love knows no schism, is not seditious. Love does all things in harmony. All the elect of God are made perfect in love. He, understand, he understands a distinguishing principle of those who are the elect of God and those who are not. He also observes to the praise of the members of the church at Corinth. Corinth was infamous for its problems. <clears throat> and here he actually praises them, to whom he writes, that formerly their contention was night and day for the whole brotherhood, that the number of his elect might be saved with mercy and good conscience. That's very strong language, the number of the elect. That's a clearly defined body of people. Saved with mercy and good conscience. Brethren, this is what we mean. This is what we believe. Elsewhere he says that God chose the Lord Jesus Christ and us by Him for a peculiar people. Commenting on Psalm 32, Clement of Rome says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. 
He observes that this blessedness comes upon or belongs unto those that are chosen of God by Jesus Christ our Lord. About 110, there was a man named Ignatius. Ignatius wrote an epistle, and this is what he said. Ignatius, who is also called Theophorus, to the church which is at Ephesus in Asia, deservedly most happy, being blessed in the greatness and fullness of God the Father, and predestinated before the beginning of time, that it should be always for an enduring and unchangeable glory, being united and elected through the true passion by the will of the Father and Jesus Christ our God. Abundant happiness through Jesus Christ and His undefiled grace. Amen. Amen. That's, a, that's a good way to start a letter. But notice, brethren, the language is simply biblical. We have to get over the fact, I mean, there are people today that if you say the Holy Ghost, they go, oh no, you're a charismatic. And, you know, and if you say predestination or election to some people, oh no, you're a Calvinist. No. I'm a Christian who believes the language of the Word of God. I remember sitting in a Bible study at work, the place where I worked at one time, and I went up to, I heard some fellows were having a study, wanted to go join them, was glad to hear there were some Christians there. Sat down with them, and they said something to me. They had heard something about the, the doctrines which I held. And they said, you really believe that? The Bible didn't teach that. And I said, well, hold on. And I sat down, and I said, open your Bibles. Let's read Ephesians 1. And I read Ephesians 1 verbatim. I got to about verse 13. And one of them said, That's just your opinion. I said, Well, I haven't given you my opinion yet. I've just read what Paul says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to that glorious explosion of praise, being predestinated, chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. I said, John Calvin, nor any of these other men later, had anything to do with putting these words in here. I said, this is a Holy Ghost word. Now, you can argue with me all day about how I understand the way it is to be understood in its context. That is, your prerogative before God but at least agree with me that the word predestination is there. And this is why the early church fathers used it. We're not trying to force them into a mold. I'm simply saying to you, the early church said these things because the epistles of Paul the Apostle and because the Word of God says these things. Now, they weren't entirely clear. You can go on and read Ignatius and he almost completely contradicts this in some places. But boy, that was just surely a wonderful way to open that letter. Hermas, in about 150, said, For those who are elected by God to eternal life will be spotless and pure. Irenaeus said about 180, When the number is completed that he had predetermined in his own counsel, 
all those who have been enrolled for life will rise again. <laughs> Isn't that good? All right, that's, we can agree with that. Tertullian, who certainly did not agree with us in many points, said this, We have been predestined by God before the world was to appear in the extreme end of the times. Now, why did he use that word? Because it was in the Scriptures. Even John Wesley had to admit the word was there. He said, yes, it's there. Now, it means this. The opposite of what we believe it means. But at least he had uh, acknowledged that it was in the Scriptures. Wesley hated the doctrine of grace as we understand it so fervently that he wrote a catechism. And one of the questions in his catechism was, what is the antidote to the gospel? And the answer was one word, Calvinism. What is the antidote to the gospel? What destroys the gospel? What he, what, you know, what's, yeah, it's, it's just amazing. I'll press on. Let's go on. Now again, brethren, I, I don't fight for a word. We would trust Mr. Calvin was our dear brother. Many of the things that he wrote were so wonderful and warm and, and a, a wonderful handling of the word of God. But we don't agree with him at all points. And uh, we do not hold him up as, as our hero as such. Though he is in one hand a very wonderful hero of the faith, we do not bear his name. We are Christians because Christ saved us by his mercy and grace. Now, we want to look at the testimony of grace in the controversy between Augustine and Pelagius. Now, this is when the issue really began to become clear and began to be enunciated after the first uh, several centuries of the early church had hammered out the issues of who Christ was, both God and man, and, and began to understand clearly the, the, uh, with the Old and the New Testaments together the glorious doctrine of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Then this issue of how God saves uh, really began to come to the fore. Now, it pleased God to raise up Augustine in this very uh, confused spiritual climate. Uh, because here we could have men saying on one hand, well, the whole thing rests on men's free will, and then turn right around and say, we've been predestined to glory by the living God. Not quite seeing sometimes that those things didn't, didn't go together. But <clears throat> Aurelius Augustinus was born in Tagaste, North Africa. That's modern-day Algeria. His uh, dates are about 354 to 430. Give you some idea of where he was in history. As a young man, Augustine possessed a consuming love for philosophy and a disdain for the Bible. He hated the Scriptures. He became a follower of Manichaeism, which was a very highly developed form of Gnosticism. In other words, he was a New Ager in his day. He was an occultist. He was in the darkest form of pagan philosophical religion. By the way, some of you may not know this, but Arthur Pink was in the very same thing before the Lord saved him. 
as a matter of fact, shortly before he was to move to India to become involved as a, uh, an, uh, an officer in the Theosophical Society, uh, the, uh, the, occultic, the Eastern Occultic Group uh, uh, led by uh, Annie Besant and Madame Blavatsky. Uh, <clears throat> they were early uh, founders of that movement, just basically what, the, what we understand to be the New Age today. And Augustine was highly in, in a highly developed form of this in those days. The Lord uh, took him out of it as he took Arthur Bing out of it. Now, <clears throat> after nine years in uh, Manichaeism, which was occult mysticism that blended some of the scriptures in, just like it does today, <clears throat> he became disillusioned with its teaching and he left for Rome. Now, he had le lived a wretched, carnal life since his school days. He fathered an illegitimate son by a woman uh, with whom he had lived for ten years. Uh, he came under the preaching of Ambrose in Milan. The brethren, for years and years and years, his mother, who was a Christian, faithfully prayed for him. He went into this he went from his love for philosophy and his intellectualism. He went into the black night of occultism and uh, uh, this mystical uh, wickedness. He lived the life of a profligate. And yet, while he was in Milan, he began to hear Ambrose. He thought he was a great speaker. He wasn't all that interested in what he had to say, but he thought he was a great speaker, so he would go and listen to him. He began to hear the sound of the gospel. The crisis of his conversion by God's grace came in 386. Listen to his own words. I'm going to read something of an extended passage here. But listen to what he says. But when a profound reflection had from the secret depths of my soul drawn together and heaped up all my misery before the sight of my heart there arose a mighty storm accompanied by as mighty a shower of tears which that I might pour forth fully with its natural expressions I stole away from Olypius. He was with a man named Olypius right then and he was in a garden. And he said, as his guilt and misery built up in him it came up a mighty storm and had to have vent. He had to he needed to go weep somewhere. So he wanted to get away from his friend. He said, I stole away from Olypius, for it suggested itself to me that solitude was fitter for the business of weeping. So I retired to such a distance that even his presence could not be oppressive to me. Thus was it with me at the time, and he perceived it. For something I believe I had spoken wherein the sound of my voice appeared choked with weeping. And in that state had I risen up. He said, Olivius knew something was going on. I, my voice was breaking up. I got up. I got away from him. He then remained where we had been sitting, most completely astonished. I flung myself down, how I know not, under a certain fig tree, giving free course to my tears, and the streams of mine eyes gushed out 
an acceptable sacrifice unto thee. And not indeed in these words, yet to this effect, spake I much unto thee. But thou, O Lord, how long? How long, Lord, wilt thou be angry forever? Oh, remember not against us former iniquities. For I felt that I was enthralled by them. I sent up these sorrowful cries. How long? How long? Tomorrow and tomorrow? Why not now? Why is there not this hour an end to my uncleanness? Now, brethren, why wasn't this happening with Olympias? Olympias. What was going on here? Was it because he was so brilliant? The scriptures burning in his heart and he knew his sin. He knew he was lost. I was saying these things and weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart when, lo, I heard the voice of a boy or girl, I know not which, coming from a neighboring house, chanting and oft repeating, Take up and read. Take up and read. Immediately my countenance was changed, and I began most earnestly to consider whether it was usual for children in any kind of game, to sing such words. Nor could I remember ever to have heard the like. So restraining the torrent of my tears, I rose up, interpreting it no other way than as a command to me from heaven to open the book and to read the first chapter I should light upon. So quickly I returned to the place where Olypius was sitting, for there I had put down the volume of the apostles. When I rose thence, I grasped, opened, and in silence read that paragraph on which my eyes first fell, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying the description of his life, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Here was a man, brethren, who lived in his lust all of his life. God in His mighty grace pierced his heart and made him know his sin. He couldn't find relief. And he opened up the Word of God. And his eyes fell here. Put ye on the Lord Jesus. No further would I read. Nor did I need. For instantly as the sentence ended. By a light as it were of security. Infused into my heart. All the gloom of doubt. Vanished away. Brethren, there are many things that Augustine wrote that I cannot agree with. He formed a great deal of what we reject in the theology of the Church of Rome. But brethren, in these moments, here was a man who knew his lostness, the need of his soul, and he found one refuge, 
And that was Jesus Christ. I am not endorsing Roman Catholicism in any sense. I'm saying that throughout the history of God's people, He can come to men in the darkest and most wretched conditions and does. It's what made a wretch like Isaac Newton write amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I have no doubt Augustine would have loved that hymn because it spoke of his life. Well, after his baptism... uh, He returned to Africa, and after years of retreat and study, Augustine was ordained a bishop of Hippo in North Africa. The rest of his life can best be seen in the theological controversies in which he engaged and the writings these produced. He believed and taught that the whole human race sinned and fell in Adam, that all men were utterly depraved and dead in their trespasses and sins until God makes them alive by the regenerating power of the Holy Ghost. He also taught predestination, election, perseverance, according to the Scriptures. He taught a great deal of error as well. I do not endorse that error. He taught baptismal regeneration later on. Brethren Martin Luther died believing that doctrine. But he understood this. Salvation is of the Lord. It is all of grace. His own theology later on helped clog up some of the ideas of grace. Where you read him in certain moments, where he is clearly faithful to the Word of God, you can only say, Amen. He saw that. God had saved a debauched, rebellious sinner by His grace and then raised him up to defend and he began to systemize God's truth against the errors of a man named Pelagius. Now there are some that believe that Augustine's most influential contribution was his anti-Pelagian writing. So let's consider who Pelagius is for a few minutes and then we'll stop for this evening. Pelagius was a British by birth. He lived about 360 to 420. He was a layman who gained acceptance in Rome as a teacher of asceticism. Now, an ascetic is a person who renounces material comforts and leads a life of very of austere self-discipline, especially as an act of religious devotion. And he believed in the goodness of the created order and taught that man had the ability within himself to do God's will simply by his own choice. Pelagian, uh, Pelagius was in his day very much like our modern liberals. We're all good. Everyone's born good. We learned some bad things. But you can fix it. You can turn it around. He denied original sin. He rejected the idea that man's will had any inherent inclination to evil. In fact, he taught that each man was created as free as Adam in his writings. Every man, woman, and child born was a separate creation of God and therefore uncontaminated with Adam's sin. All the time using the Scriptures, how he could have Romans 5 in front of him and teach that seems unbelievable. And yet, 
This was the case. He denied uh, radical depravity. He denied predestination. The heart of Pelagianism is this, man's unconditional free will. His moral responsibility and his cooperation with God in the processes of salvation. He believed that God's law sets forth what man ought to do and brings rewards for his obedience or punishments for his rebellion. And since he believed that original sin did not exist, each man was able to choose good or evil. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like much of modern Christianity. It's very Pelagian in some quarters. He believed that God's law Oh, excuse me, I just read that. And since it says it's all up to man and his choice. In other words, he denied the need of divine internal grace to keep God's commandments. He was utterly offended that Augustine said, Lord, command what you will, and then give me the power to do it. He was offended at that kind of talk. You can do it. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do it. You don't need all this... Well, God help me stuff. Do it. For him, God's grace, when he said God's grace, he meant the gift of will, free will, which ought to be used for good. Pelagius was a very moral man, and his doctrine stressed man's ability to take the initial steps toward salvation by his own efforts apart from special grace. God's predestination operated according to the quality of the lives God foresees men will lead. Now, this is, does this sound vaguely familiar? You see, brethren, the reason we're doing this is, is not to say, well, let's have a history lesson instead of studying the Word of God. The point is to say that men have wrestled with these issues throughout the history of the, the, the Church of Christ. We simply want to place ourselves within a historical context and to say that as, as the preacher of Ecclesiastes said, there's nothing new under the sun. By the way, Pelagius' teachings were condemned as heresy by the General Council of Ephesus in 431. I'll give you a quote by John Gill I thought was interesting, another one. He says, It is worthy of notice that what serves greatly to show the general sense of the Christian church concerning these doctrines that when Pelagius first broached his notions concerning grace and free will they were looked upon as new and unheard of and were condemned by several councils by one at Diospolis in Palestine at which there were 14 bishops by two at Carthage in the last of which were 67 bishops and by another at Milevus, or Milevus, in Africa, which consisted of 60 bishops. And in the first of these, Pelagius recanted and was obliged to subscribe the condemnation of his tenets, and else, or else he had been anathematized, cut off and excommunicated, uh, excommunicated from the church. So that Austin, that's Augustine, was far from being the only person that rose up and opposed him. And indeed, Pelagius for some time had very few that either did or dared openly to espouse his notions. And as for Austin, 
He was so far from being alone in his sentiments that it was well known that not only the Roman and African churches, but all the sons of promise in all parts of the world agreed with his doctrine, as in the whole of faith, so in the confession of grace, as Prosper observes. Now again, why the point of, of these kind of quotes is just simply to say, brethren, that when people look at us today, and I could tell you a couple of denominations where we could go and say what we believe, and they would, where did you people make up this doctrine? They would say to us, I've heard it said. Where do you get this new stuff? It isn't new, and the doctrine that they're holding and thinking is old was condemned as heresy at a certain time in the history of the church and was considered a new doctrine. So, brethren, these things go back and forth. I want us to be well grounded in the fact, as was pointed out last week, the grace of God is found in the Old Testament. The grace of God is found in the New Testament. And as Brother Gill said to us, if we find the doctrine that we hold simply to be the doctrine of the prophets and the apostles, then we're satisfied whether anyone else held them or not. If the first church... Uh, began to believe other things, then we can only grieve for them that they left the doctrine of Scripture. Brethren, salvation is the work of God. It is the work of God. It isn't something that God helps men do. It isn't something that God needs man's help in. The God of mercy and of grace before the foundation of the world, purposed to save sinners through His Holy Son, Jesus Christ. And He makes that glorious revelation known in the Scriptures. We have a Paul who at the zenith of his religious darkness was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ, could be brought to the glories of the risen Savior, and who could say, in God's time, when it pleased God, not only to separate me from my mother's womb, but to call me by His grace. Regardless of what men throughout the ages of the church say or believe, we don't turn to them as our authorities. I simply hold them up to say, Brethren, when we hear an Augustine pouring out his heart before God, pleading for mercy, and then realizing later as he deals with a man like Pelagius, no, it isn't that we can pull ourselves up and say, well, we'll go along this far and God meets us. I couldn't get to God. I couldn't find any release until His Word broke in in my heart and showed me my wickedness and the glories of Christ. This is the testimony of the saints of God throughout the, the history of the church. We don't all have to have dramatic conversions. With some it might be overnight in a moment. They can say yes at this time, at this day. And there are others who could say, well, I don't know exactly when it was. But I know this. When it pleased God. 
Will you please God? As I wrestled through a period of time, I finally came to see I needed Christ. And the day came when I knew there was no other hope for my soul but Jesus Christ. I put on Jesus Christ by faith. This is our doctrine. That God comes to men. He opens their hearts and brings them to life. Brings them to faith in Christ. We don't put a, a, a tear count on that. We don't say that you have to agonize for days. You don't have to go throw yourself on your face in a garden. You might. But brethren, sitting where you are right now, if you see the poverty of your soul, call on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who said, Come. Come. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. He's done it for all of His children. And He's faithful to do it today. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing 
and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.